0: in nineteen eighty six when i was coming of age ronald reagan doubled down on the war on drugs that had been started by richard nixon in nineteen seventy one america's public enemy number one in the united states is drug abuse in order to fight and defeat this enemy it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive drugs were bad fried your brain and drug dealers were monsters The sole reason neighborhoods and major cities were failing. No one wanted to talk about Reaganomics and the ending of social safety nets, the defunding of schools and the loss of jobs in cities across America. Young men like me who hustled became the sole villain and drug addicts lacked moral fortitude. Judges' hands were tied by tough-on-crime laws and they were forced to hand out mandatory life sentences for simple possession and low-level drug sales.
1: The Brooklyn I knew growing up, It was tough. It was largely a Caribbean, West Indian community. So to say the least, we were marginalized. But in all of that marginalization, being Haitian was like a death sentence.
2: That was the late Michael K. Williams. And you are now listening to season one of Unjust Justice, the James Rosemond story. The call came in from a federal criminal institution On the other end of the phone was James Rosemond. His nickname was Jimmy Henchman, or Jimmy Ace. And the call from inside the feds, as they were called, was a simple exchange. Jimmy wanted to tell his story. Jimmy Henchman is in jail for nine life sentences. A street hustler from the 80s and early 90s, Jimmy was able to parlay his fierce reputation into a successful hip hop mogul, who was then convicted as a federal drug kingpin. Jimmy's story is an impetus to cover the deep connection that has driven hip hop music, starting in the mid 80s until today, in the complex relationship to the culture and the federal criminal justice system.
0: Now the 90s painted this narrative using hip-hop. Hip-hop was like the canvas to speak about this new world of crack, killings, prison, militarized police forces, right? And so, you know, for us, hip-hop was this audio documentary. It was telling us and detailing these stories of, you know, prison and and murder and and, and gangs and, and drugs, but it was also, you know, communicating to us our story and what we were going through. So now we're looking at this society and this environment that's been destroyed. I mean, drugs for rappers in the 90s who grew up in the 80s and 90s, like myself, dominated our economic possibilities. And I I found myself idolizing and looking up to drug dealers and to gang members. In the 90s, you know, hip hop painted this response the murder, the mayhem, the prison, the death, the destruction. And rappers, you know, were speaking a language that we could relate to. I grew up, you know, feeling like I was being raised by Lil Wayne, by Tupac, by, you know, Jay-Z.
2: This story is a personal journey into the deep underbelly of a billion dollar business. It is also a look at the American criminal justice system through the lens of celebrity, the war on drugs, in the current explosive debate on race, policing, and mass incarceration inside our country.
3: This call is from a federal prison. It's hard for me to sit here and justify in my head seven life sentences because someone one said I was a drug dealer. All of the money and the drugs that they had in the courtroom, none of that belonged to me. They had no tapes, not even a fingerprint of mine. They had nothing. And they made that into where they could take millions of legal money from me. Money that I acquired from representing Mike Tyson, the game, Wycliffe from doing movies for 20 years I've been in the music business for y'all to come take my property to take my money to take everything that I've worked for to take my life is ridiculous and I am in shock that justice system even works that way I believe I went into that courtroom. One of the prosecutors already guilty. It wasn't about the fact finding of the truth. This was about convicting Jimmy Hinchman.
2: Who I am right now is not important. What is important is my reporting on this story and Jimmy's journey. At times, my sources needed their identity protected. I have honored that request. And I will communicate that to you when needed. I spoke to Jimmy for the first time on December 17th, 2015 at 6.22pm. Jimmy was speaking on the phone from one of the worst federal prisons in the United States, Hazelton in West Virginia. This would be the first of over 100 phone calls. Over the course of three years, I was able to really talk to Jimmy, not only about his life, but his excursion through the federal criminal system in the Eastern District in Brooklyn, in the notorious Southern District of New York. They play tremendous roles in this story. And to understand Jimmy's life and where it ended up, you have to understand the mechanics of federal investigations, the FBI, DEA, NYPD, inside the hip hop music industry. On that first call, I could tell that Jimmy was a storyteller. And his intellectual prowess and his business acumen were very sophisticated. He could not have done deals with Mike Tyson, Don King, Lennox Lewis, Lior Cohen, and many other hip-hop power players if he didn't have nerves of steel. His criminal persona did not match up with the person I spoke to from jail. I had to ask myself if what he was telling me was the truth, or was it a version of his own personal truth. Maybe he dabbled in the drug game, but was he a drug kingpin with the same charges that El Chapo faced? Was that even possible? Good gangsters have that chameleon-like ability to endear people to them and their mission. Anyone who was a true gangster is simply an elevated entrepreneur, playing a game where the stakes were death or jail forever, where Jimmy was right now. Some audio you will hear in episode one is archival sound from a documentary series on Jimmy that I produced called Unjust Justice. Celebrity and crime is a volatile mix. And in his own right, Jimmy worked with celebrities and he navigated those worlds really well. I went to talk to acclaimed actor Michael K. Williams, Who is famously known as Omar on HBO's The Wire. He grew up around Jimmy, and ultimately, Jimmy started to manage Michael's career in Hollywood. I wanted to know more about Jimmy's character and his career before we ultimately dive deeper into his court trial, which would decide his fate. Along with talking to Michael K. Williams, I spoke to Derek Hamilton, another friend of Jimmy's from Brooklyn. Hamilton had his own horrific experience with the criminal justice system. 20 years ago, Derek Hamilton was at his lowest point, locked in solitary confinement for a murder he insisted he did not commit. 23 years later, he finally persuaded prosecutors to throw out his own conviction after an eyewitness recanted her testimony.
1: Back then when we were kids, it was a time and an area where gentleness was not an ingredient for survival. It was Brooklyn. You know, violence was at its its highest rate. You had to be alpha or you got
0: eaten. You know, people was killing each other, man, just to try to eat.
1: He definitely was not one that was going to be walked
0: on. Jimmy was a man that respected everybody, but he demanded respect in, in return.
1: You either came at him straight or you would want to leave him alone.
3: Now, if you would have arrested me when I was 17 and said that I was doing those kind of things, yes. I was extorting. I was robbing. People were very afraid of me.
1: Jimmy definitely uh, has a bad reputation from his
3: past. But not at 40-something, man. That wasn't me. I wasn't that person no more. My family left Haiti because Papa Doc was a vicious ruler at the time. I was born in Harlem Hospital in 1965. There were five of us, my sister and three brothers. We stood out because my family spoke Creole, but the American guys just couldn't understand a black guy speaking not full French but a broken French. So I noticed from there that I was different. My brother, Kessner, was a bit older than me. He was more prone to the streets. He would bring some of his friends over. And so I started getting introduced to street guys. All of them were pretty much West Indian guys. They were either from Trinidad or Jamaican. One guy in particular was a guy by the name of Winston Harris. And Winston Harris is the guy who testified on me, who I knew since I've been seven years old, which really broke my heart. My mother and father broke up. We moved at that point to Avenue Deacon Rogers in A Couple of blocks down to Nostrand Avenue, there's projects there, which is the Vanderveer Projects.
1: I first met Jimmy, uh... We were actually kids. Uh, we grew up in the same neighborhood, East Flatbush. I lived in the Vanderveer Projects. Jimmy lived in the surrounding area.
0: What I remember about 1981 was it was epitomized by the film with Kurt Russell, Escape from New York. Because if you had the wherewithal, you were getting the hell out of here as quick as you can. Organized crime and corruption, it was a big thing back then.
2: It I said, you mind your business, you did what you had to do and nobody stood in your way.
0: People were trying to sell you stolen merchandise. Every day they'd come over, you know, you want to buy a radio, tires, a bumper. This was all day long, and they never stopped. Yeah, I was the night manager of Mickey D's in the Bronx. I had crime problems in the restaurant. I had to go over the counter and deal with them individually. I was getting rheumatism, arthritis from dialing 911. It was a joke. And instead, I had cops coming in trying to scam me for free food. Now I'm about
3: 10 years old and I'm in this house. My mother's a single mother now. All of my brothers are pretty much older, way older than me. I'm the youngest. And so nobody's really home to supervise me. My mother's working two jobs. I remember there was times when there weren't no food in the house. The streets at that point pretty much kind me. I would sneak out of the house, um, 11, 12 years old, and I would hang out at the project. I would get up early in the morning and I would steal the newspapers that they would deliver to the grocery stores in the morning and then I would sell them by the train station. After school, I would be around the project. The guys in the project, there was a lot of West Indian guys. I couldn't hang out with the American guys, even though I wanted to. But they would never understood when they called my home that my mother was speaking Creole. And I didn't know how to explain that to them. So the only guys that I could really cling on to that could understand my West Indian heritage was the Jamaican guys or the West Indian guys. And that was pretty much when my life kind of changed for the worse. Because the guys that I clinged on to were very, very violent guys. 13 years old is when I probably owned my first gun. 1976, I remember being in my living room and the newscast goes off. They're talking about the Untouchables. They had a big shootout in the projects and it's a bunch of Rastafarians and this war spilled over from Jamaica. So the next day when I go to school, All of the kids are talking about it. Little brothers of these guys are my friends. So they pretty much put the first gun in my hand when I'm 13 years old. In 1971, gang violence had escalated to a fever pitch. There were gangs literally in every
0: corner. The violence was everywhere. You could hear the shouts in that nighttime. It was a lawless time.
3: Me and a lot of the older guys who were part of the Untouchables got very close. And I don't know how that happened, but by the time I'm 14, 15 years old, I'm fully involved with a problem that has nothing to do with me. Guys started calling me Jimmy Ace. I liked the name. That was a name that I, I really enjoyed. It was different. All of us would watch Spaghetti Westerns. And We would emulate, you know, the Clint Eastwoods and John Wayne. For some reason, the streets emulate theater. In heads, it was almost like we are either old-time gangsters or cowboys. It's a hell of a thing killing a man. He'd take away all he's got, and all he's ever gonna have. There were times where guys would take me on missions with them. And then I, I just started making a name. For
1: them. He was one of our urban legends in the community. He had a reputation for, you know, just, you know, no nonsense.
3: We end up becoming the bullies of the neighborhood.
0: Growing up in the 80s in Brooklyn it was hellish, man. It was literally hell unleashed.
3: I was playing hooky so much, and I started failing in all my classes. I just dropped out. At tenth grade, and by 16 years old, I was arrested two separate times with firearms. By the time I was 18, I had a murder charge and two other
2: firearm charges. In 1983, Jimmy took a plea bargain to a firearm and use charge and was sent to the juvenile detention center at Rikers Island.
0: Rikers was crazy, man. Rikers was, you know, kids cutting kids, you know, getting beat up by prison. It was violent. You had to be tough. I mean, you had to defend
3: yourself. You had to fight. And as soon as I hit Rikers Island, a bunch of guys come to me and say, You don't have your nine millimeter now, Jimmy Ace. You better check in the PC. And that's pretty much when I kind of realized, like, Man, you did a lot of people wrong the
0: scar that jimmy got on the top of his head he was cut and right down just because another individual decided to get a razor and cut him in his forehead
3: around two years into my bid, i run into a guy by the name of richard de Moore. he's an ex-black panther and he sends me over all of his case he tells me to read them i'm reading about a shakur Joanne Chesamore, Bobby Seale, Huey Newton. I'm reading about all of these guys that I kind of know about because I grew up in the era of the Black Panthers. But here it is, Richard Deruva Moore is right next door to me and he's pretty much teaching me now. Around that time, I converted to Islam. I become Muslim and he tells me I need to go get my GED and complete school. 19 years old or so at the time. I'm in one of the hardest jails in New York State, which is Comstock. They call that gladiator school. And I go and I complete my GED and then I enroll in college. And, and at those times, they had college programs in upstate New York. So the teachers would come in and they would teach us courses. And there was some kind of breakthrough for me at that point where I could talk it out instead of fighting out. I didn't feel like I needed to resort to violence anymore. So I end up getting an associate degree while I'm in jail. And I come home and I'm 23 years old now. And it's 1988. All of the guys that I leave in the streets who used to be gunmen are now hustlers. Cracked cocaine, done invaded the neighborhood. All of these guys are heavy,
2: Cocaine dealers. Crack has become America's drug of choice. A potent, inexpensive, highly addictive form of cocaine. It is an uncontrolled fire.
0: It became a way to make money for young black, poor, uh, uneducated males.
3: And I fall right into that whole mix. Everything that I know better. But this is the only family that I have. And so I get into the coke business. Jail, all it really was was a university for criminals. I meet all these guys in jail. I had friends in Manhattan, the Bronx, Bed-Stuy, Brownsville, East New York. Gangsters from all over the city is buying coke for me. I'm not starting off selling eight balls and ounces. I'm selling kilo. It didn't take me long to have a lot of money buy homes, to have businesses. I was smart enough from the stuff I learned in college. I knew what to do with the money, and here it is, I'm a full-blown drug dealer. One day I went to deliver a kilo of cocaine to some guys, and um, they tied me up, and they was like, you're going to die tonight. And I really just walked into a robbery that wasn't supposed to be mine, but I went to go deliver it, and it was just like jackpot we got him they took me to the car in the back of the house and he was telling me to lay down i felt my hands getting untied me and the guy started struggling for the gun the guy throws me in the back seat of the car and he empties a 38 on me and i get shot three times i get shot in my hand my arm i'm blocking my face and my head in one shot grazes my head but he he shot six times he emptied the gun on me i end up making it to king's county hospital i survived that i'm 26 27 years old i'm a cowboy still i'm thinking i'm gonna live forever i'm thinking i'm invincible i'm moving around i'm in california i'm in miami and i'm probably one of the biggest drug dealers in brooklyn
2: It didn't take long before law enforcement took notice of Jimmy. By the early 90s, police had him under surveillance and were investigating him and his cocaine connections.
3: They were following me from Miami. They think I'm still in the house. I'm in Brooklyn, they kick in the door and I'm not there. They find a a bunch of money in the house and from there I'm on the run. I know I have to get away from Brooklyn. So I start hanging out in Manhattan. And I opened up my first office, which was on 25th and Broadway. I opened that up around 1992. It really asked my hideout. And at that time, I don't know nothing about the music business. I don't care nothing about the music business. But one of the fascinations of being a gangster or a drug dealer is that you want to rub shoulders with guys who have money like you want, guys of your stature. And usually you look at entertainers as those guys.
2: Here is former Editor-in-Chief of The Source magazine, Kim Osario.
1: The 90s was a time in hip-hop where drug-dealing rap really became popular. And I think a lot of artists were surrounding themselves with street guys because it lent credibility to who they were.
2: To give context to the world Jimmy was entering, it was a business where the streets could be involved. This was no different than when the mafia families inside New York City controlled concert venues and various artists. A lot of hustlers of the 80s and 90s knew that the hip-hop music business was an avenue where they could go legit. And why not? The money from the crack cocaine explosion of late 80s was drying up, and the drug kingpins of that era were now in jail for lengthy sentences. The drug game was evolving, and the fast money of the 80s was dead and gone. To go further, tactical narcotics teams now were the norm all over New York City. Law enforcement was better funded, smarter, and were using long prison sentences to destruct any drug crew that got powerful inside New York City.
3: This is what David Hyatt comes to me and say, he had a music company He was talking about, do you want to help me fly some people down to Miami and do a big party? And he could bring Ice Cube and Fab Five Freddy. I jumped to it. I gave him $50,000 to charter a plane. And that was when I first met Fab. And me and him pretty much kicked it off because I knew he was from Brooklyn. I was from Brooklyn. It was just a moment.
2: At the time, David Hyatt was an established record producer who was best known for discovering R. Kelly. Ironically, his fate mirrored Jimmy Rosemont's. In 1993, Hyatt was tried in federal court for cocaine trafficking. In 2015, Hyatt died in prison, serving out his life sentence. The party became a tradition, and it evolved into the How Can I Be Down convention a highly influential industry event.
1: The How Can I Be Down convention was the place to be for anyone who wanted to do anything in hip-hop. And I think from that,
3: I got the bug to want to be in the music business. I was chest deep in the streets at the time. The money was so good, and I really didn't have to do much. Let's just say if you're making 30000 a week or you're making fifty grand a week. I don't care in what business you're in. It's just hard to walk away from it. Nobody knew me in the music business. I could become whoever I wanted to become. I went scouting for producers, and I ran into Bryce Wilson, and Bryce told me that um, he had an idea of... Putting him and a female together, uh, something like a loose end. And I understood exactly what he was talking about. Bryce went ahead and he got Amel LaRue and said, This is who I think I want to do my group with. So I immediately did a deal with Groove Theory where I signed them under Henchman Productions. And so in
2: 1992, Jimmy founded Henchman Productions, an agency built to bring talent and record producers together.
3: Mind you, I really don't know the business at all. I'm green as hell. We fly out to Los Angeles, when we walk into Warner Brothers, the whole staff gets up and start clapping.
0: Booth Theory's style at the time was progressive. It was almost pre Neo Soul.
3: And they're like, please sign here to Warner Brothers. We will do anything if you would just sign here. How much money do you want? My phone rings at that point and it's Paris Davis. And Paris Davis says, Tim Blue, what are y'all doing in LA? And I'm like, well, Benny flew us out here and I'm seeing what kind of deal they want to offer. And he's like, yo, Tommy Matola wanna talk to you right now. And I'm like, who? And he's like, Tommy Matola. I'm gonna put him on right now with you. I'm almost speechless. Tommy Matola is a legend, man. He's like, Jimmy? I want you guys to fly right back and come to my office. I want to meet you guys. I love your group. I want to sign them right now. And I'm like, oh my God, And The next morning, we're in front of Tommy Matola. So I did the deal. That was my first deal. And that was under Henchman Productions.
2: Groove Theory had a media attraction. And early on, several record labels showed interest in signing the new act. Groove Theory's single, Tell Me, went on to be number five on the Hot 100 Billboard charts.
3: Simultaneously, around that time, I'm dating Fault, And she's like, I need a record for our comeback album. So she's like, yo, I'm going to the studio to listen to some beats. Don't you have some producers? You don't want to play me nothing? I was like, you know what, I do. So I call Mark Spark and I tell him, "Listen, man, you bring the best beats that you got." And he comes to the studio. He's playing the records, and then the Ike Turner sample comes on.
0: Hey, yeah, I wanna shoot, baby. And
3: they're like, "Play that again, man." They started rhyming and they made the record. And they was like, this is going to be our single. <laughs> and I was like, how lucky could I be? And here it is, two records that shot up the top 100 charts. This is when I started really taking the music business seriously. My studio was built. I had a bunch of producers now. And what was happening was, I was hitting up all of the industry parties, so guys started seeing me, and so I wasn't just the how can I be down guy no more, I was in the music business now.
0: Henchman Entertainment would fit right amongst the other houses in the, in the music industry, be it Bad Boy, be it Rockefeller, be it Rough Rider, it was a vibrant organization.
3: For the first time in my life, I find a business that ain't prejudice against me because of my background.
0: The great thing about the music industry is if you had hustle and some modicum of intelligence and appreciation for the culture,
2: it was accessible to everybody.
3: They looking at me like, you know what? If you have a talent, we want to work with you.
2: On the next Unjust Justice.
3: Last night, just after midnight, at
1: 723 7th Avenue, that's between 48th and 49th Street, our rap star, Tupac Shakur, and three members of his group were robbed and
3: shot. Why are you saying that it's Puffy and Biggie and you blaming me? Like, why are you doing that, man? He started laughing, man. It was an uncomfortable laugh, but he laughed and he was like, yo, man, you know how this shit is, man. You know how this trap shit is, man. Come on, Jimmy, man.